Hello, and welcome to See Generally, Penn Law Review Online's new podcast. My name is Magalie Duke, and I am the online managing editor of Penn Law Review Online. In our first episode, senior editor Seth Rosenberg sits down virtually with Professor Tess Wilkinson-Ryan to discuss contracts, psychology, pathways to academia, and Philly's food scene. We hope you enjoy it. All right, everyone, welcome to the University of Pennsylvania Law Review Online's podcast. I'm really excited for our guest today. Proud favorite at the law school, multiple awards for her excellence in teaching, Professor Tess Wilkinson Ryan. She studies the psychology of legal decision making, and her research addresses the role of moral judgment in legal decision making, with a particular focus on private contracts and negotiations. So, better food city wise, Boston or Philly? What are you going with? Come on. Come on. <laughs> If you're going to start off with that kind of question, that's just tendentious. Like, what the answer? <laughs> the answer is obviously Philadelphia. Oh, um, yeah, no. Okay, listen. The Philadelphia food. Philadelphia has a an undersung food scene, although I think it's increasingly appreciated. Um, I grew up near Boston and know it well enough, um, and I'm sure their food is great. But I would, um, I would. Uh, okay in the Philadelphia food scene any day. Um, we, I live in Queen Village, and within within three blocks of my house, I can get four pizzas that would have been the best pizza I'd ever had if I'd had them when I was 20 years old. Is Boston pizza not good? Is, is that what you're saying here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd be fair. I've also never lived in Boston at a time in my life when I had a salary and could afford to eat anywhere good. So it's possible I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say maybe your memories are, are warped. And I also do I do appreciate the, the seafood situation, but I prefer the seafood in uh in my, in my own hometown in Maine. <laughs> okay. Um so let's let's go back to the beginning, your journey into legal academia. You finished Penn in 2005. Was your thought process I'm jump. Were you? Did you already know then that you were going to go into the PhD? Did you always have an interest in psychology, or you know, like what was your what was your thought process? Um, when I got to Penn, it was 2002, and I had had a couple of um, I'd had at that point had four jobs in my in my three in my three years since college. I'd had four jobs. None of them obviously had panned out. Nor was I a particularly reliable employee. Um, and so I, I did get to law school, having the sense that I needed to like. Um, you know, that I was, that the goal was to identify like a career path. And, um, and when I started law school, I had just pretty, I had really great faculty and I saw what they were doing and I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, one of my, my property professor, we had been in, back in my day, we took property in the first semester. Um, and my property professor was Wendell Pritchett, who's now the provost of the university. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember Wendell talking about his life and his job. And I thought like, this is this sounds incredible. You know, he like like he was doing. You know, he could sort of do all the things. He could teach and he could write and he could be involved in like impact litigation. I mean, it was just it was like it. It sounded like to me, it sounded like he was almost doing like the best parts of different of three different jobs almost. Um, and he, you know, and my my professors like like Wendell were so impressive. Um, 
and they got to talk about ideas all day. So, so I basically tried to figure out, I basically, you know, sort of saw a goal and then just tried to figure out how to get there and, um, found it, um, challenge, found it pretty challenging to, um, to sort of know what my contribution was going to be. Like I had the sense, you know, if I'm going to be an academic, I want to be able to I'm gonna make a case for myself, right? Like, what am I bringing to this enterprise? Um, and it took, that took me a little while. I actually spent my third year of law school at the University of Chicago Law School instead of Penn. Um, yeah, I was wondering about, when I looked at your resume, I never heard of a visiting student. Uh, it's typically people, I mean, I'm not sure if that's going to change, if, that, if that's changed at all in, the, in, in COVID times, um, but historically it's been something that people do because they either have a particular study, studying interest somewhere. That's pretty unusual because law schools are all, you know, yeah. Also generalist, right? Um, but also for personal reasons. And so, in my case, I just got married. My and I, my um, and my uh, husband um, was getting his degree, and so I just did my third year at University of Chicago. I just you know, and um, and that turned out to be really helpful because I could um, I could sort of see what about the Penn experience was distinct and what was shared among schools. And at the University of Chicago, at that particular moment, there was a bit of a sort of a zeitgeist around behavioral economics. And I had a background myself in psychology and my undergrad degree was in psychology. I'd done some like, you know, some, I had a decent background in research in psychology, but I had never quite figured out like how it would apply or how I would, because I wasn't particularly interested in um, in what we would have called abnormal psychology, like um, had, nudge, had nudge come out at the time. Exactly, or? so nudge had not come out, but I took admin from Cass Sunstein, oh, wow. um, and he was at the time, I think it was him bringing in, or was he was part of a sort of influential group of scholars who were also coming through the law school there. So I took a course called the Psychological Analysis of Legal Decision Making, which is this one unit course with a visiting professor from the University of from UCSD, like a sort of a famous psychologist to me. But anyway, but it was this great course. And I thought, like, this is a thing I could do. This And it also just made, it made sense to me. I liked it. It fit with the kinds of law I was interested in. I tended to be, I'm, I, you know, I'm, sort of naturally probably gravitated toward the more private law subjects. Um, and so thinking about how sort of doctrinal or regulatory choices play out once they have to sort of pass through human minds and human behavior was felt really like a great um, choice to me. And so I, anyway, once I got my act together and figured out what I wanted, like what the goal was, then I applied for, for PhDs specifically in cognitive psychology and in the, in the sort of subfield of judgment and decision-making. Um, and I'm really interested in moral decision-making, sort of what people think moral choices are. Um, and it turned out like so lucky for me. And so it's one of those things that just fell into place beautifully. <laughs> like really, I just yeah. feel very grateful. <laughs> Sounds like we really, we really <laughs> wanted to go back to Philadelphia. Um, my husband and I, and we just like, you know, we, we had, we missed it in our, nine months in Chicago um and Penn had one of the most well-regarded like just one of the found founders of the field really of the moral psychology and, and judgment decision-making areas um and he's interested in law his name is John Barron um um did you consider still the uh, a PhD in philosophy at all or or were you more or was it more the, the psychology <laughs> to be to be perfectly honest I'm not I was not qualified so <laughs> you can't just like right. wander into a PhD program without a, um, without some background. And so as a psychologist, 
I could make a claim for myself. I had, I had, I had published, like I, you know, I had a robust undergraduate education in psychology as a philosopher. Like I wouldn't, I would have barely passed the, I wouldn't have made any sense to a philosophy department. Maybe if I could have convinced someone I was interested, I was going to do like behavioral ethics, but honestly, I didn't even have the language describe that at the time. It sort of took me a little while in my own research to understand that what I was doing might be like characterized as behavioral ethics. Are you which is all, and we have a great, yeah, for what it's worth, we have great faculty and Penn, Penn it turned out, like the, the amazing thing was I came back to Penn and multiple departments at Penn had like sort of superstars writing in this area just from different perspectives. And so it gave me this whole, it was, it was a great education. are you you like surprised more students don't take that route or or do you get it because it's like so competitive or do you think like people don't really appreciate like what what that route offers when you say that route you mean getting academia academia. Uh, i'm um i'm not surprised i don't think that historically penn has put a lot of emphasis on that as a career um, that students might pursue. We've had a couple of really strong programs. Um, the, I mean, you know, what where where Penn Law is historically a superstar in um, in academic training is is the JD PhD in history. Um, so that's where I mean, we've just produced these amazing scholars. Um, you know, so our own our our own Karen Tani, um, Greg Oblowski, um, I mean, anyway, there's a whole yeah. Um, so so. I think it takes a lot of support to get from to get people into to get people to go into academia. They have to be um, they have to have really planned out the financial piece, right? It takes a long time to make to like graduate stipend is not enough to pay loans typically. So you have to be thinking about how you know how that's going to work. Um, but I also think you know it's a funny. It's a funny job. I talk to students sometimes, or it's a funny path. I talk to students, you know, every year, right, about what they, about the academic path. And I think that it can be a little bit, they can be a little bit taken aback when I essentially say to them, I think you have great ideas. And I think this is a totally sensible path for you. And I'll see you in five years. Because like, no, it's very unusual. Unless you come to law school with a plan, like you've already gotten your PhD or something. Or you know that this is, or you're doing a joint JD PhD. It's very unusual in this, in the modern era, for people to go directly from law school or even sort of with, with a short stop outside of law school into academia. Typically, you need a pretty robust body of experience or um, academic training or whatever it's gonna be in order to have, and you need time to write. And like, I did not come out of law school myself with, with a bunch of ideas of things to write about. Like it really took all that time. So I, yeah, so I, I was going to ask about your, your, your writing process, like how you generate ideas. Cause when I was thinking about for my own comment, it was just like, you know, there's too many different things that you could write about. And then at the same time, it feels like there's nothing you could write about. So it's like hard to sort of choose. That was for sure how I felt when I wrote my comment in law school is I, I just felt like I was sort of swimming in this. I just didn't have, you know, I didn't have sort of a, a disciplinary language. Um, so I found the PhD extraordinarily helpful 
for giving me a focus and a toolbox. And, and I know people are talking about whatever various academic toolboxes, but I actually mean, in some ways, I mean that it gave me one toolbox and not like a million, right? So it's just like, this is the tools you've got. So now you need to be asking questions that you can answer with this toolbox, right? And that's, that. I think that that's a, that's a helpful, that for me, that was very, um, the constraints were helpful for my being able to, to figure out the right path myself. The, so sorry, I can't remember what, what, what I'm supposed to answer right now. My, what I was answering was, oh, how I like write about a thing. Okay, so, so what happened, so what was super useful was I went to graduate school. I had to write something. Right. I, I talked a bit to my advisor about, about, I mean, I was in this PhD program was like, my, my thing was moral decision-making, right? So, um, about the idea about sometimes about the clash of moral decision-making and legal rules. This was not my, like, I'm not the first person to think of this. this. There's a whole bunch of articles already written about this, et cetera. And so we talked a little bit about where I had ever seen this, where this would come up. And I had had a particular interest from law school. I'd gotten sort of interested in the question of divorce bargaining. Um, and like, I don't really know. I mean, like, I, like I'd read a couple articles. They'd been interesting. And I thought like, it seemed kind of funny to talk about people bargaining for the bargaining for, sorry, for the allocation of property on divorce, not, not bargaining for the divorce itself, bargaining for how they're going to split their stuff yeah. privately. Um, and there's a famous article called bargaining the shadow of the law that talks a lot about the case of divorce, right? That's about how the, how parties would sort of rationally bargain given that they know what the court is going to do. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is a kind of a key this is, this is a place where you would see um, a divergence between people's moral intuitions and the legal rule. And the, and the, and the people involved actually have a lot of play. They have a lot, that they have a lot of sort of room because litigation is so expensive. So they have a lot of room to, make, to, to sort of, you know, um, to make the process less sort of rational or smooth or whatever than you might otherwise think. So on on the topic of you know moral decision making and, and contracts, I, I was reading your article about um, you know hush contracts and NDAs, and my first thought was when you were talking about how the contracts you know exploit you know human psych psychological traits. I, I, I kind of it wasn't it's not related, but I, I thought of click wrap contracts actually because mm -hmm. how they kind of take advantage of we're just like trying to just get rid of it yeah. or inattention and, and why, why do you think those are legally um, enforceable but a an NDA wouldn't be I mean I think the NDA is in some ways a carve out like so that so the I mean the, like if you think about all of these things all of these contracts are flowing from sort of basic the I'm sorry let me back up the enforceability of all of these deals flows from a basic set of principles about assent, right? NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, so the non-disclosure agreement you might sign with an employer, for example, um, which could, which one can imagine sort of more, more sort of sensible or more sort of pernicious forms of that, right? Um, like not, you know, not sharing trade secrets on the one hand or versus not, um, not, not disclosing any details of any harassment you experience at work is another kind of, right? So um, you can think about NDAs as being something that has basically been targeted 
on sort of specific public policy grounds. The idea is, yes, we agree that people agreed to this deal. Sorry, yes, we, the whatever court, or we think people that the parties agreed to this deal, and we think this deal is so bad for society that we think that this that these deals shouldn't be enforced. So click. So okay. So that's that sort of that's sort of how that that's sort of how like the train of logic goes, right? It's like yes, we have assent. Yes, we have consideration. Looks like a contract. Oops, violates public policy. We are going to carve out a huge bunch of contracts and say these won't, these aren't these kinds of deals we won't enforce. Sort of like other kinds of deals that you wouldn't. Inf- I mean, you know, you know, all kinds of contracts you wouldn't enforce on the grounds of public policy, right? I just taught a case this year um, about the, about a, the, a court refusing to enforce a um, a um, what was called a baby fair. It was a a show uh, like a fair, like literally like a country <laughs> fair that featured um, babies, where they would, babies would get like prizes, and it was during the um during a, a pandemic it was during the polio and the court said ah oh, we're not going to enforce that contract it's bad for public policy because you're going to make a bunch of babies sick right click wrap by contrast is also basically still analyzed by traditional contracts principles right do we have evidence that these parties manifested assent to this deal and then the answer is just yes we do because they clicked they clicked i agree like that's that's the that's that's manifestation of assent and there's no, we could, you can imagine a different world in which you say click rack is click, click rap, excuse me, is not enforceable. Pretty hard to carve out, pretty hard to know what goes in its place, right? But like, like, what do you do? Like, what do yeah. you do instead? And so, I mean, look, I have an, I have an answer to that question, but it's not, a, but my answer gets mostly left out of the room because my answer is basically like ban contracts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is tongue in cheek a little bit, but the idea is basically the my my like quib, not quib, my my quarrel with click wrap is that it gets analyzed in terms of regular assent. You know, we ask things like when did the parties have notice of the terms? So that was the was the hyperlink something that was visible to them when they clicked? I agree, or did they have to scroll down the page? Who cares? Like <laughs> yeah, that makes it of- seem. Yeah, it makes it seem like we actually care about assent. If we cared about assent, we would be honest about the fact that we know perfectly well that these terms are all written not to be read. And it also kind of reminds me of how, um, like, a lot of early economics overly assumed how rational people were, and they weren't, like, focusing on what was actually happening in front of them. I, You know, and, and I think you can even broaden the, like, in the sort of... Um, one of those sort of original think about thinkers on this was Herbert Simon, Herbert Simon, and he and he wrote about rationality and and one of the things about rationality is it's not just about like whether people are sort of rational in the traditional sense of like attending to the right things, but also just the extent of processing capacity that they have. You just don't have the processing capacity for all of your contracts. You like you legit could not. You would be reading contracts all day long if you were going to read all of your terms and conditions. You should not be on this phone call with me right now. Right, you're you're, like, you're busy. You got to go like check and make sure that the like that you actually have the rights to watch the soccer game at three or whatever you're going to do, you know, right? Like, like truly, like we would have had to be like reading terms and conditions of this, of the like zoom meeting. Right. I mean, yeah. and like the stuff on the back of every single like bottle of shampoo and jam and whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, like your toaster. Like, so actual realism about humans in some ways, you have this pretty thin understanding of humans and just be like, listen, this, this stuff is obviously not, not meant to be read. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and I don't even know. Well, so this comes up in arbitration clauses, right? Like people not knowing about their arbitration clauses, not knowing that their that their deals are subject to arbitration. And one of the concerns is like people don't really know what arbitration is. They don't really focus on it when they buy stuff, right? Like you buy, like you buy your whatever. But like, I have no idea if they should have focused on it or not. Do you know of any like experiments where people or behavioral economists like reordered a contract 
um, or like switched a few words just to see if, if there was any effect. So there's a whole bunch of, of um, studies from behavioral economics, from um, consumer finance, actually, which, which are, um, that are about how people's response to things change if you manipulate the salience of different terms. Um, and so um, Ian Ayers and Alan Schwartz at um, Yale have um, a really nice article about how you might think about taking certain terms that are the least expected and putting them into like a literal um, like a literal caution box at the top of the contract, um, which makes sense, right? I mean, you can think, well, that's what we do for cigarettes, right? Something like that. There, I mean, so Professor Fish, my own, my colleague at, at Penn Law, um, she and I wrote an article that is in the Penn Law Journal, um, it's in the Penn Law Review, um, from 2014 or 15, maybe, um, uh, where we tried to do this with the terms of your investment um, choices, just manipulating what kind of information you see where to, to sort of change, whether you change out of, sort of certain default settings for, for retirement investing. And the answer is for, you can definitely change people's behavior in a lab setting. I feel very un not optimistic about that as a broad approach, as a broad regulatory approach, because you're kind of always tinkering on the margins. And so it's, it's sort of like um, all caps. Yeah. So um, a professor at um, at the University of Alabama Law School, um, Yonatan Arbel, wrote a great article about all caps. And, and so you've seen all caps in contracts before where like a whole clause will be printed in all caps. Yeah, and then I just ignore it. <laughs> of course you do. It's also super hard to read all caps. Like the, like that's like lexically, that's a very hard reading task for humans. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, like when everything's bold. Like I want, I used, exactly. to, used to have like, debate when I would do, do debates I would bold everything and then just nothing became useful to me exactly and so the idea is of course you can move things around to make different things more salient but in the end you're going to have to you're, you're making a normative choice about what ought to be the most salient and you have to make sure it is in fact more salient than the other stuff because otherwise you just have a lot of things that you've once everything's salient, none of it's salient, right? So it's a really hard set of policy questions. So my my like tongue-in-cheek argument was, you know, I'm less tongue-in-cheek over time, was wouldn't we be better off just admitting that firms unilaterally draft terms, that consumers are not on notice of those terms, that consumers are not on notice of changes to those terms, and that that is the state of the world? What, what comes then after that, though? So then... <laughs> Great question. So here's my view. My idea is something along the lines of this. If I call right now and say to Comcast, hey, wait a minute. It was very, you know, I thought that my deal had uh, no fee movies. I'm making this up. <laughs> Uh, I thought I, I thought that my deal had uh, you know is, had unlimited animated movies. This is very important to me. And they say no, no. If you looked carefully at the fine print, you would see that it said you had unlimited animated movies for three months, and then that was and then you keep paying the full price the rest of the, the, the year's term. And I would say, how am I supposed to know that at first? And they would say, you, look, I'm showing you your contract. I'm showing you where you clicked or you signed. And I say, I guess I did. I guess that's my fault. If, however, <laughs> <laughs> I have no, there is no contract that I have signed and the, t and the term seems pretty bad to me, I think that I am less willing to say, that seems really bad. I think I'm more likely to use my sort of traditional me means of protest of sort of exit or voice, right? I can either be like, okay, then forget it, Comcast, I'm out. Or being like, this is outrageous. Firms are allowed to do this? This seems really bad. Um, Interesting. I mean, I guess my only, like, how, like, how do you, you know, do business? <laughs> like, how do, how do firms know to rely on, you know, a certain performance 
um, from other businesses if they don't have any contracts. Oh, sorry. That, I th I'm, this is a great, great question. Um, yes, this would be consumer contracts only. Oh, right. Okay. Business to business is a whole different world. They've got lawyers involved, both parties, hopefully. Right. They're negotiating. They're actually negotiating the terms. The terms are expected to be read. I mean, the um, battle of the forms notwithstanding, the idea is that they are capable of reading their terms and having them vetted by attorneys and that they are at least capable of knowing if they thought if, if whether or not a term deserved their attention. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm also um, curious what do you think, I'm gonna just completely pivot here. <laughs> what do you think about um, in the world of COVID, you know, a lot of jobs have gone fully remote. Do you see visiting professorships having any virtual visiting professorships at all? Or, or have you heard any you know, discussions of, of anything like that? Can you say a little bit more? Wait, I can't tell if you're responding, if you are in part invoking the fact that I've written a thing about visiting professors in there. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. Okay, I was great, more just, great, great. I was I'm more starting, just, yeah. Starting from scratch, great, great. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was more saying like, I've been hearing a lot of people say like their companies are hiring people, hiring people straight out of the gate, fully remote, with really? no expectation that they'll be in person. And so I was wondering if you think- I see, okay, gotcha. Yes, know. yes, yes, okay. I don't know the answer. Um, I think that law schools, maybe I know part of the answer. I think that law schools place an a very high value on in-person learning. I think one of the things that I learned this year, um, at this past year, was that law teaching does presuppose, not presuppose, rely on, I think, in, in ways that I would describe as positive, as, as sort of productive, um, like the energy of, the energy and to some extent the like intimacy of people in a room arguing with each other, um, which, and I, which I really value. Um, there are certain kinds of visiting professor roles that I see like the world open, opening up to in remote visiting stints that I see the world opening up to. And I think ways that would be pretty awesome. So the ability to have, to have classes with people who just literally would never come be able to come, you know, in person, right. Yeah. There are just going to be people for whom, it would not be feasible because they are located in Asia, because they are located, um, because they are, because they work for, you know, because they have a demanding full-time job in DC, right? What like, what who could teach a course remotely? That seems to me like a like something that's really sensible for for law schools to be thinking about. Like, how could you how could you have these sort of enriching opportunities that you would otherwise have no access to? Yeah, because because I, I I would I would imagine that there are a lot of you know, lawyers that, you know, probably feel geographically limited if they were to think about, you know, being an adjunct or being a visiting professor or, or, yeah. or anything like that. But if, if, you know, they were able to do it remotely, then, yeah. you know, then the world opens up to them. That's right. The other thing that I thought that, that, that I will, that I will sort of take with me as a, as a faculty member when I'm teaching in person is the ability to have people come and speak to my class. Like I, that was, and I would actually go fully remote in order to make it possible to have like periodic zoom conversations. When we were, when we were remote in the spring of 2020, when we first locked down, I mean, I, I don't think I was alone in feeling bewildered by how to make the switch. This was sort of before we had that full summer to prepare for what remote teaching was going to look like. And I was teaching at the time consumer law and the most, and so 
in, in to be fair, a moment into be like in like a moment of desperation, I contacted three or four of my colleagues from from Penn and different schools and recorded conversations with them, video conversations with them about topics we were going to talk about, about in class. In part because at the time it was there was some more asynchronous material because it was some concern about whether people really could anyway. Because if you recall, it was very like it was, hectic, yeah. it was very <laughs> it was very hectic and you couldn't rely on everyone having you know their sort of normal schedules and access to the technology at the right times. Anyway, but so. What I realized was bringing in like an extra, so I was talking about say consumer bankruptcy, a topic that is not my area of expertise at all. But one of my favorite colleagues from the University of Illinois is super interesting and was totally up for talking to me for 45 minutes about consumer bankruptcy issues and about the cases that we were talking about in class. And that's a pretty dynamic conversation. And if, and then, and students could participate or not participate depending on the timing of it. And I would never give that up. That was like, I would love to keep doing that for my classes because- I, I think more did just did digitization of, of law school is a, is a good thing overall. I mean, obviously, I don't don't want to go back to spring 2020, but I think that more content, you know, shorter little videos or, or like you said, like a talk is, is definitely a positive development. Yeah, I, I did find it more challenging for the introductory course. So for the upper level courses, I found it to be more um, I found it because you're really doing all this material that feels enriching and a lot of it is meant to be thought provoking rather than sort of like grappling with and nailing down material. I really do um, have a, I mean, I, I have like, I'm, I'm on, I'm on record with this view that like there is that we don't really understand. It's remarkable what we don't understand about learning. And there is a whole physical piece of learning that has to do with knowing who is looking where like eye contact, um, inter, like interpersonal cues, um, spatial cues in a room, that facilitates learning in ways that I that I think are a, ch- a real challenge to fully replicate on Zoom. I feel like I was much more successful doing sort of having both things available to me, you know, having some in person and some. some yeah, I mean, there was, there was a period where everybody was like, the, the future is now, we can be virtual all day. And then there was like two weeks later, we were like, all right, we got to go back in person. There's no other what is um, an article or a topic you've always wanted to write about, but you were like, there's no way this will ever get published. So you never en- ended up spending the time on it. Mm, gosh, I'm going to think about this. Um, as, as you probably are aware, I've been writing about an extremely narrow field for, um, for a long time. Well, so what I, 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 what, um, I can tell you one, but I am writing about it. So <laughs> we'll count it. We'll that's count because it. things. It's because a turn, a turn in the world has suggested to me that, that I can take this turn. So when I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper on. Um, I wrote a. I wrote my qualifying exams. The, the like the thing you write in order to, in order to get to dissertation stage. Um, on the idea of being a sucker, um, <laughs> and how and how scared people are to be a sucker. Um, and I did write a paper with Professor Hoffman actually. Um, called breaches for suckers early in our early in my career that was about the idea that people don't like one of the things people don't like about breach of contract is that it makes them feel like they've been taken duped they've been taken advantage of um so i've kind of been collecting these ideas about suckers for a long time um i think some of these sucker ideas really um um wrap in a lot of things that i'm pretty interested in in but um gender status power questions um, you know, I was gonna say, like the the yeah. idea of a, of a sucker in contracts. It sounds like yeah, it's, it it makes the whole thing more aggressive. I think because like any, it doesn't have to be like if if I don't hold up my end of the agreement, I'm automatically taking advantage of you, and you're you're a sucker. I think like that sort of framing. Exactly. Um, yeah, is kind of, is probably just like indicative of just how you know we see contracts as like a yeah. sort of zero sum kind of thing. 
No, and I think that you're, that you're, the language you're using is exactly the language I would use on framing, um, that I would say that a lot of what's um, happening in psychologically is a question about whether you do choose or not, not choose isn't the right word, but whether you do or do not impose a sucker frame on a particular situation. So you might say, listen, I'm not, I'm not worried about being a sucker in a situation. I'm taking a rational bet that this is going to work out. The worst case is that you have to is that you breach and owe me some damages. Maybe I have to pay to take you to court. That that does sound bad, but I'm that's the, I understand the risk I'm taking. There's no there's no sense in which I'm being duped here. I totally understand the, the, what the bet is, right? Um, but there's another framing that says like I trusted you, and then you know we've got all. I'm I'm thinking of the case now of um, of Alaska Packers versus Domenico. If you read this in contracts, so I trusted you. Then we got out into the middle of the ocean, and you said you weren't going to work for me anymore. And now, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, and and. The fish, yeah, exactly. And now I feel, and now I feel duped, or I feel exploited, or what, or you know, I feel like you've purposely sort of put me into a box, me into a corner. Um, and there's, you know, there's different ways you could describe that, um, that interaction. So I've always wanted to write about, um, <laughs> write more extensively about suckers, and maybe more like capaciously, not not sort of entirely about contracts. What's, um, what's the working title? Is it "Suckers Are for Suckers" or something like that? <laughs> um, I, I, this is a book. I don't have a title yet um yeah i don't have a title yet like my working title would would probably my working title is suckers but uh tbd if that's gonna if that'll stick (laughs) (laughs) so on the topic um just wanted to get your opinion on uh the four-day work week and (laughs) mental no just because i I was thinking about you know we're such an overworked population and you know how how can we you know fix some some of the mental you know strains that we we, we experience as a society do you think a four-day work week would make americans happier or would people get bored and, and just uncomfortable with added unstructured time or you're all for it <laughs> that is a really out of um that's a that one's a real surprise um let's see <laughs> yeah i'm good with out of context questions <laughs> you know it has been a long time since i had a schedule that was um um that where the where the you know where the weekends and the weeks are super distinct um in part because um academics kind of are you know it's like you always have homework right because you're always writing something and also because um i have because i have kids and so the sort of my i find that the distinction between the weekend and the week is maybe a little bit less um is you know is a little bit less sharp um in my personal world um my i think there's a lot of work that expands to occupy the time that's given to it and so i suspect that there are a, a lot of kinds of work that you can do in less time people could be more efficient and that having more having more time be more flexible is probably is 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 good i mean my experience is the amount of time it takes to like keep a household marginally functional is is a lot of time and that yeah <laughs> Yeah, I was I was just at my my brother's for the weekend, and I was just like marveling at you know how much how much less responsibility I have, and how I still feel like I have a lot of responsibility. You know, he has a kid, you know, job, and just that you add. I always feel like if you add like one more thing to it, I'll just you know, house of cards will just come down. I know, I know. my my own my own mother was a worked was self employed, um, and she was a she was a substance abuse counselor, um, in Maine, and like one of the, and what she would describe as what she says is one of like the smartest things she ever did was it's when when my sister and I were young was to decide that she was not going to work on Mondays so she worked four days a week but the last like most people take off Fridays and she was like Friday (laughs) 
sorry, I'm, I, I, I just I stopped. Okay, there we go. Yeah, no, she so she said at the end of the weekend, you know, kids would go back to school, and she would have one day to pull everything back together, get herself ready for the week, and then it would start. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like some countries, you know, they work on Sundays also, um, like the opposite of us. Um, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on to the show. I'll, I'll let you get back to your barbecue. And, <laughs> yeah, sorry uh, for the traffic noise. I'm sitting on a sitting on a street outside of it. <laughs> no, it was, it was great speaking with you. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing you in school next semester. Awesome. Thank you so much, Seth.